Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, The Love Series, Part 4. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number four in the Love Series, and this will be the continuation of Saturday morning service, August the 30th, 1980, in Colorado Springs. We had a lady come give a testimony in our body at Pritchett, Colorado, and she was sharing about how that she had three kidneys. The Lord had completely he healed them. She had congenital malformation of the kidneys. She was supposed to be either dead by this time or on a kidney machine all of her life. The Lord completely healed her, set her free. She couldn't see her hand in front of her face. God restored her eyesight. She was able to believe. She was up just testifying about how miracles had happened. Her husband was supposed to be dead. He threw his medicine away, went into convulsions, and she prayed for him, instantly raised up. Broke all the medical records. Every person in their family miraculously healed. She was just giving testimony after testimony. And some old lady in our church was sitting there and just puffed up, puffed up. You could tell she was mad about the whole thing. And the Lord led me that morning to minister about our first love. And about how God says out of Revelation chapter 2 about how that we've left our first love. And he said, repent and do the first works. And then we got over into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I was talking about this very thing about how God's kind of love is not envious. And I said, if you can't rejoice with another person when God has done a miracle for them, if all you can do is think about, why doesn't it work for me? Then one reason it hadn't worked for you is because you aren't operating in God's love. You're self-centered. You are envious, which is not of God. And when I got to sharing that, the Lord opened up this lady's heart, and she stood up in front of everybody and testified that she, you know, exactly what had happened that morning. And she testified about how that the Lord had shown her. And she got back into her first love, and she began to rejoice with that lady and sit there and get her attention off of herself and begin to confess, I am not envious, I am not self-centered. And she began to operate in God's kind of love, and she said, it's just like going back on a honeymoon. Amen? Things begin to work. Because, you see, envy is something that when you see envy come up in your life, you are not operating in God's kind of love. If a wife is envious of a husband prospering, if the husband gets something given to him and the wife, well, I don't ever get anything, you aren't operating in God's kind of love. Amen? Amen? Y'all are sure quiet. Act like I'm hitting home. Amen? I don't mind that. I know that lots of times when people get quiet, they're thinking. Praise God. That's what we need. We need this to soak in on us. So if you are envious, it is not God's kind of love, and immediately you ought to start changing, and you need to start rejoicing with those that rejoice. Amen? You really do. The Bible says out of the book of James, chapter 3, that where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. You open up the door to every device that the devil could possibly want to put on your life if you get into envy and strife. The Bible says out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that husbands are to render unto the wife due benevolence unto the wife as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. If you are operating in strife, your prayers are hindered. You aren't going to see things happen. And, of course, that applies to the women, too. If women are in strife with their husband, your prayers are hindered, and you aren't going to see the manifestations of the power of God. Not because God holds back, but because you have allowed Satan to come in. Satan is the author of envy and strife. If you are envious, if you are covetous over something that somebody's got, that is not God's kind of love. Get out of that. Start blessing people, amen. And start saying, and start rejoicing with them. You know, Jamie, she has to operate in this a lot because I'm the one that ministers to people most of the time. She is not. 
And so people come to me and people tell me how much they've been ministered to. People give money to me at, at uh, my birthday. Most of the time, anybody that knows me always remembers my birthday and does something for me. And Jamie sits there. Amen. And you know, she's human just like anybody else. But I praise God that she does not get envious. She rejoices at seeing God prosper me and people uh, love me and give thanks to me. And that's a God's kind of love. But it would be very possible that a lot of women in her situation could sit here and get resentful towards me and towards other people. How come I'm not getting this? If that would be her attitude, it would be because she wasn't operating in God's kind of love. God's kind of love, see, is not self-centered. And it can rejoice when other people rejoice. Amen? Praise God. Now, if we hadn't hit you on these first two points yet, you just aren't breathing, amen, because I guarantee you everybody has problems with these kind of things, and we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. Did you know the Scripture says that? Those are exact words. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself. That means you keep yourself. Well, God, how come I'm not operating in love? God's not the one that makes you love. Love is totally a decision of your own will. You can choose to be self-centered, to be envious, to be jealous, or you can choose to be what God told you to be. The choice is yours. Amen? And don't you sit here and say, well, you know, this is just the way that I am. No, you, nobody's made just to hate. You have to be taught that kind of stuff. You have to be well taught, and Satan has to put down a good plan. You can change yourself. You can be a loving person. You can operate in these things if you will to do it. Amen. God gave you that power. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Well, that goes along with being envious. In other words, he's saying that God's kind of love is not self-centered. It would rather give than it had received. Now, I want you to understand this. There are a lot of times that people sit here and when it comes time to minister to another person, they immediately think, what's it going to cost them? How much time is it going to cost them? How much inconvenience is it going to cost you? And immediately we begin to think of what it's going to cost me rather than think of the other person. God's kind of love is more concerned about the other person than it is about yourself. Now, there's some wisdom to use in this, because if you've got a home, I've seen some things abused here, that there are some people that have taken in and tried to help other people at the extent of their family, and they let their home simply go to pot because they've opened it up. Other people have taken advantage of them and done so many things that their home is destroyed. Like in my own life, I have such a desire to minister to other people that I'd minister three times a day every day. Amen? I just love it. Except that God showed me I've got a home, and that I am not going to neglect my home or minister at the expense of my home because what good is it going to profit me if I minister to other people and if I saw Satan come in and destroy my home? So I have a responsibility in my home. There's some wisdom to use in this, but basically you should not be considerate about considering what it's going to cost you. You ought to be more considerate about what, how it's going to benefit another person. It should not be self-centered, and it says here that you should not be puffed up. Boy, if any of you ever get to thinking that you really are it, then you haven't arrived yet. The Scripture says, If any man thinketh that he's anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. Amen. If he, any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. You need to realize, praise God, that we, we need to put things in a proper perspective. Amen. And love will do that for us. Love keeps us in check. God's kind of love will. Amen. In verse 5 it says, Love doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Praise God. I tell you, we could spend a lot of time on all of these things. I'm just skipping through some of this. But does not behave itself unseemly. 
Are you ever to a point where you sit here and you do just a bunch of dumb stuff and you do things that are not wise and you make a fool of yourself? One of those reasons is because we haven't yet been perfected in love. You know, love will give you some wisdom. Love will give you some maturity. Did you know it? Love will keep you from behaving yourself unseemly. Have you all ever seen some of these people that I, I know you have? I, we were at the airport just the other day, and there was a couple there just smooching and hugging and mauling each other right in the airport in front of everybody. Well, I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They may have been married. They, you know, it may be fine. Except that, you know, there is a time, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There are time and places for certain things. And when you see somebody that's just got such stars in their eyes for somebody that they are behaving themselves unseemly, I don't believe that's God's kind of love. And I've seen a number of these cases, like one of Jamie's relatives. Boy, when we first got married, I went and met this guy. He was on his second marriage, and they just all hunted each other and petted each other, and she rubbed his fingers through the hair while he was eating. I mean, it was repulsive. It really was. I mean, they just were all over each other the whole time. And everybody talked about, oh, don't they love each other? Well, within a year and a half, they was divorced, and she's doing everything she could to destroy him. And I mean, the thing there, it was just a show. It isn't God's kind of love. When you really got God's kind of love, you don't have to behave yourself unseemly. Did you know a lot of times that the reason for that is because the person is so insecure? And because they don't really feel a confidence about God's kind of love, they are trying to overreact, trying to overdramatize it, trying to work something up. When there's a real relationship of love, you don't have to be that way. One of the things that blessed me with Jamie was that when I'd been out dating other girls before, you always had to be on your best behavior. You always had to, you know, keep the conversation going. If there was a lull in the conversation, everybody would get embarrassed. You all ever been through that? And you got to, you know, really keep the conversation going and everything's got to go just right. And boy, you know, you're on pins and needles. Well, the good thing with Jamie was we had a relationship of love. We could sit there and if nothing was said and we just, you know, looked out the window, it's fine. We just enjoyed being with each other. You didn't have to put on the dog. I came over in my old car. I didn't have to feel like I had to go wash it. Now, there's a balance to that, amen. <laughs> you shouldn't just be a bum and take love for advantage. You ought to put yourself on your best behavior. But you shouldn't do it because you have to do it. You ought to do it because you want to do it. And we felt complete freedom to be each other, around each other, and we don't have to put on, and we never have had to put on, and as a result, I believe that's one reason we got a healthy marriage, amen, is because we are not having to behave ourselves unseemly. We've got God's kind of love. We can sit here and just love in the way that it's supposed to. We're confident of it. Amen? Y'all see that? Praise God. And it says... That it seeks not its own is not easily provoked. That's what we was talking about a while ago about suffering long and is kind, and it thinketh no evil. Now, I tell you, this is something that Christians need to really be exposed to about God's kind of love. If your husband hadn't come home, if your wife hadn't come home, or this or that, you know, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he is continually accusing us. If you're operating in God's kind of love, you won't think any evil. If you're sitting here worrying and fretting and imagining this and imagining that and imagining all of these other things, you aren't operating in God's kind of love. God's kind of love will think the best of a person. It will think no evil is what the Scripture says. And I can say that in our own marriage that, that a lot of the things that we've had, we've never had strife or problems in the sense that most people talk about. We never have had a fight in the seven and a half years, nearly eight years we've been married. 
But there's been times, I mean, we sure could have had a fight if we'd have just jumped in and got with it. I mean, we've had temptations and opportunities just like anybody else. And I can see that in those times that the majority of it was nothing but Satan accusing one another. Like there was a time in Childress, Texas, that Jamie and I sat down and I said, we need to have a talk. And I said, I feel like that you have been doing this and this and this to me and infringing on my rights and privileges. She turned around and said that she felt I was doing the same thing to her. And as we got to talking about it, it was really kind of ridiculous. Because neither one, all it was was just Satan is all it was. Neither one of us had done what we were accusing the other one of doing. It was all Satan lying and blowing things up out of proportion. In other words, we had gotten out of operating in God's kind of love. We had begun to be self-centered. And every time a person said something, we were touching, we were taking it the wrong way, and we weren't operating in God's kind of love. To have a healthy marriage or a relationship with anybody, you're going to have to get God's kind of love going to where you don't sit there and try and imagine what people do. Did you know that one of the qualifications of an elder is to be sober? You know what the word sober means? doesn't mean not drunk. It can mean that, but it means a lot more than that. Being sober means, among many things, there's a lot of different uh, explanations in the dictionary I looked it up in, but one of the main ones was void of speculative imagination. And boy, I got to thinking, what does that mean? You know what that means? That is, if you, you walk in and you see Loy, and Loy says, Hi, Andy. And you say, I wonder why he said it that way. And you start speculating, and you don't have any basis of anything. Maybe he hadn't had his cup of coffee this morning, amen. Maybe he just, you know, isn't feeling good. Maybe he's got a stomachache. Maybe there's a lot of different things. But by the time you get through speculating and imagining, you see that law is mad at you, that law has done this and that, and you're ready to go punch him in the nose by the time you get through thinking about all the things that law must be thinking about you, and the whole time he's not guilty of one of them. You let Satan blow the whole thing out of proportion. Isn't that true? Amen or old me. Y'all know that's the truth. That happens to everybody. All of us have sat here and we sit here and imagine, well, I wonder what this person's thinking about me. I've been criticized for it, but I just don't, you know, I don't sit there and imagine what you're thinking about me. If you are not man enough or woman enough, strong enough to come and tell me what you think about me, I'm not going to do you the dis, uh, how do you, discredit of sitting here and trying to imagine what you're thinking. If you got something against me, you come tell me. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to think everything's fine and you aren't going to get me to imagine imagining and speculating. It sets me free. I just sit here and I'll think the best of you. And if you got something against me, come tell me. Did you know I've pastored a bunch of churches and we have seen a tremendous amount of strife stopped. In one case, we operated for over a year and a half without any strife in a body that I was aware of at all. And one of the reasons is because we begin to speak the truth in love, is what the Scripture says. And I told those people that God's kind of love is telling a person the truth. And I said, if you've got something against me, don't you dare go tell another person. Don't you dare mention it to anybody else. You come tell me. And I said, I love you, and I'll receive it the best I can. And if I feel you're wrong, I'll tell you. And if we just reach a place where we can't agree, I'll love you anyway. And we reached a point to where I knew I was so confident that those brothers and sisters loved me that when somebody came around and they said, did you hear what Jack said about you? Do you really know what he thought about this meeting? Do you really know what he thought about your ministry? I sit there and I say, I just don't want to care. I don't care to hear it, you know, because if Jack, I believe Jack loves me enough that if Jack doesn't like it, Jack's going to come tell me, not you. And it stopped strife. It stopped tailbearers. It stopped things like that. Because if you operate that way one with another, I guarantee you Satan can't come in and destroy it. The Bible says out of the book of Proverbs that where there is no wood, the fire goes out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. 
If you don't put wood to a fire, the fire will die out. If you don't repeat what the devil's trying to stir up, it can't grow. I've had a lot of people come and give strife to me. Have you heard what so-and-so said? And I'll bury it. And I'll never tell another person. And you know what? It dies because nobody will repeat the story. I've also told my people, I said, if somebody comes and tries to dump their garbage in your mind, just put your trash can lid on, amen, and tell them to go dump their garbage somewhere else. I'm not listening to it. And you know, we ministered and talked about that enough that one time a good friend of mine, I had a bunch of people criticizing me. He was delivering fuel, and he'd drive around, and everybody would say, you know what Andy's been doing and all of this. And you know what he did? Everybody had heard me use that example. He'd just go like this and walk off, and they knew exactly what he's talking about. And guess what? From that time on, never did anybody ever try and share with Kenneth any of their bad reports. He was free. He was able to just go on and walk on with the Lord, and there was strife around. But he wasn't a part of it because he put his old trash can lid on. Did you know people won't share their junk with you unless they think that you like it? They like somebody that'll pity them. Somebody will get in and bellyache and moan and groan with them. And if you sit there and somebody says, Oh, brother, so-and-so is really in bad shape. And you say, Praise God, I believe that they're being set free. Amen. And you don't listen to their evil reports and you just go on and think no evil. They'll quit telling you. They'll go find somebody who'll get down and ball and squall with them and sit there and tell about it. Yeah, brother, it's really bad. They'll find somebody who'll go to agreeing with them. God's kind of love think no evil. If you are rejoicing, the next thing it says down here is it says that it rejoices not in iniquity. If you're the kind that you rejoice, somebody comes along and says, Well, so-and-so, I knew that it would happen. They really went back on the Lord. And you say, Well, I knew it. I knew it. I believe that all the time. Ever since they first got up, I knew it wouldn't last. And you, in a morbid sense, are rejoicing over seeing somebody fall. Brothers and sisters, you didn't operate in God's kind of love. I don't care whether they were right or wrong, whether they got what they deserved. You ought to at least feel some bit of remorse for the fact that they have been hurt, whether they deserved it or not. If you're a gossiper, you are not operating in God's kind of love. You're thinking evil, you're reporting evil, you, you are not operating in God's kind of love. If you are a tale-bearer of bad things, you are not operating in God's kind of love. Amen? And if you aren't operating in God's kind of love, then you're operating in strife. And Satan is going to come and overhaul you. And you are not going to be profited by any of the other things that you do. Satan's the accuser of the brethren, and we need to realize this. And, and you can stop those accusations by sitting here and operating in God's kind of love. Think the best about a person. I got some people, you know, I see people come to these meetings, and I, there's some people that aren't at these meetings that usually come to our meetings. And the first reaction is to sit down, uh-oh, I wonder what this, and I wonder that, and I wonder if they're mad at me. Maybe it's a person I've prophesied to. And they hadn't been back since I prophesied to them. And you begin to think, boy, you must have really blown it. They must have really disliked what you said. You really stuck your foot in your mouth this time. And you can go to getting condemned and upset. And did you know that the whole time maybe they're out of town on vacation? And you're going through torture and Satan's beating you down and condemning you. And the whole time there's no truth to it. You can stop that kind of stuff by just forgetting it. If somebody doesn't like you, it's their fault. Amen. It's their problem. Let them have the problem. I'm not going to get upset over it. If they don't like me, come tell me about it. If you don't tell me about it, I'm not going to cry over it. Amen? I'm probably not going to cry over it if you do tell me. Praise God. Well, that's freedom. I hope you all are seeing what I'm saying. That'll set you free. And in your marriage relationship, it'll set you free. It really will. There's times that I've seen Jamie, you know, something isn't just right. And immediately you begin to get self-centered and self-conscious. I wonder if I've done this, if I've done that, and I can get in and make the situation worse. 
And then I find out later that maybe something else was bothering her. It didn't have anything to do with me. Maybe she was thinking about something else. And you see, I just bury those things. Satan can't come at you. The Bible says that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you order your thoughts according to the Word of God, and God's Word right here says God's kind of love thinketh no evil, all it can produce in you is life and peace. If you get to thinking contrary to God's Word, which is carnal mindedness, and if you get to speculating, have speculative imagination and all of these kind of things, it's going to tend to death. You're going to find death working on the inside of you, discouragement and depression. I thought with the sister over here, you know, and when you're believing for your husband, when you're believing for your wife, when you're praying for them and trying to see them come around, you've got to get to where you don't sit there and try and read between the lines and see what they're thinking, and don't even go by what they say. Go by what you believe. You're releasing your faith. You're believing that God's dealing with them, that God's convicting them, that they're coming around. Who cares if they sit there and tell you, oh, I don't like any of this stuff. I'd rather go out and live like the devil. It doesn't make any difference because, you see, if you're operating in faith, God's convicting them. And brothers and sisters, it's a blessing to see a person start rebelling at the Word. Did you know it? That's the truth. Indifference what's bad. When you see somebody indifferent to what you're saying, then you're in trouble. Because when God's Word is prevented in the, presented in the right way, there is no such thing as indifference. You look at Jesus' life and at the ministry of the apostles, they either had a revival or a riot everywhere they went. But there was no such thing as people not, you know, knowing that they were in town. When they went someplace, he said, those that have turned the world upside down are come here also. I guarantee you the gospel causes no small stir. I can stand to be persecuted, but I cannot stand to be ignored. And I'm not ignored, amen. We get it. People either love us or hate us, but very seldom do people go out saying, well, I didn't get nothing out of that. They go out loving it or hating it, but they don't leave indifferent very often. And that's the way that God's kind of love is. When you see a person start rebelling, that means, praise God, I'm getting through to them. I know God's dealing with them, and they aren't ready to receive yet. And this means that, boy, God's got them in his squeeze, amen. He's, he's convicting that person. You ought to go to rejoicing. Quit looking on the outward appearance. Quit going by what they say. Who cares? If they get mad, that's because they're feeling conviction, and they aren't ready to respond yet, so they're kicking at it. But that means that they are being dealt with. That's a blessing, amen. That's a blessing. When a person starts squirming in the seat, I can say, praise God, it's getting through. <laughs> Amen. If they get up and leave, praise God, a seed was planted. It got in their heart. They understood what I was saying. That's the reason they got up and left. Amen. And it'll be reaped somewhere. You see, if you get that kind of attitude, the devil just can't beat you. Your husband and your wife rebels, and the worse they get, the more excited you get. Amen. Praise God, we're getting through. Amen. The Holy Ghost is doing the work. You can't get defeated that way. I tell you, brothers and sisters, if we just operate in things the way God wants us to, you can't lose any way you go. If they repent and come around, praise God for it. If they rebel at it, praise God. Boy, this means that the anointing of the Holy Ghost is working. They're being convicted. You just can't be discouraged if you'll start operating in God's kind of love and think no evil. But most of us are prone to see the evil. The natural realm, that's the way that they operate. In newspapers, what sells? Good news? Bad news sales. You can put all the good news on the front page. People would drop the paper in a moment. But you start putting all the killings and the murders and the rapes and all the bad news on there, people will buy it. They are prone. We are conditioned. It is a demonic trait because Satan has been the god of this world and has been ruling over it. We are conditioned to see the evil and to gravitate towards the evil. And therefore, we are conditioned to think evil. You can see one little thing go wrong. may not mean anything at all, but most people will immediately go to thinking something bad. People have a little pain in their chest, and the devil will go, 
heart attack. And they'll go, yeah, amen, immediately, I agree, heart attack. And they'll start thinking the worst. And it may be that you ate something that didn't, dis that didn't agree with you. But by the time you get through thinking about it, you're convinced it's a heart attack. You go to releasing your faith for it and you get it. I've had pains hit me. I don't know if I've ever had a heart attack or not. I don't go to a doctor to find out if my face working, amen. I just believe God. But I've had pains hit me that have knocked me to my knees. It sure sounds like a heart attack, what other people have described, but I don't care. It doesn't make any difference if Satan wants to hit me with a dozen heart attacks. I'm not going to receive it. I'm going to walk on. I'm going to be in health. And I don't care if he hit me ten times with one of those. It's not going to slow me down. And I'm not going to go ask somebody to check me out. Amen. God's Word tells me where I am. I just don't think any evil. I am not conditioned. When I begin to have a sniffle, the first thought is, praise God, I'm taking a healing. Amen. I don't take colds. I take healings. You can be positive-minded about it. And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, you can walk in health and you can walk in prosperity. And God's kind of love will do that. When you know that God's on your side, when you understand how much God loves you, you, cannot, you don't have to be fearful of sickness. The reason a lot of people jump on every little symptom that hits their body and says, oh, this must be it, is because they're fearful. Fear is perverted faith. Are you all aware of that? Fear is faith in reverse. Fear is faith in the devil instead of faith in God. A person who fears something is actually believing Satan. They are putting their faith in Satan. If you are fearful of dying of a cancer, in other words, you are releasing faith towards that thing in a reverse direction, and you'll bring that thing to pass. The thing which you fear the most will come upon you. Do you know what? And so you can get God's perfect love flowing, and perfect love will cast out fear. I'm not fearful that I'm going to die of something because I know it's God's will for me to be healthy. According to my day, so shall my strength be. Moses was 120 years old. His natural force was not abated, nor his eyesight dim. If God did that for Moses, the Bible says, Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, I'm greater than Moses. Amen? Are you all aware of that? Brother, what are you saying? You're greater than Moses. Well, he that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament saints. John the Baptist was greater than Moses. I'm greater than John the Baptist. What the Scripture says, I got more power and authority. If Moses could live to be 120 years old, his eyesight not dim, nor his natural force abated, I can at least go that long. Amen. amen. Praise God. That's the truth. And I don't have any fear of it. Perfect love. Cast out fear. I know God's on my side. I know it's God's will that I prosper and be in health as my soul prospers. So I don't have any fear of being sick. I don't have any fear. If something hits me, big deal. I don't go to thinking heart attack, arthritis, disease. I go to thinking health. Amen. I go to thinking how much God loves me. I don't have fear in that area and Satan can't dominate me. Love thinks no evil. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we need that. We could stay on that a long time. Praise God. You'll have to go to the Lord and just get that verified. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Are you rejoicing in the things of the Lord, the truth? According to John chapter 17, verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you rejoice in the word? When you get in the word, man, is it exciting to you? Do you love it? Are you rejoicing in the truth? Or is it something that you have to do? Like, man, I know I need to be in the word. I don't want to do this, but I've got to do it. If the Word is not causing rejoicing on the inside of you, guess what? Your love's deficient. And you need to get back and start confessing. Praise God, I've got God's kind of love, and I do rejoice in the truth. I'm going to get in this Word, and I'm going to love it. Amen? And you can get in there, and you can cultivate a love for the truth, because that is one of the things that God's Word does. Immediately, when I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit, out of Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love 
joy, peace, all these other things. Love is one of the greatest evidences of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And love came alive in me for the Word of God. I mean, I couldn't put it down. I'd read it 16 and 17 hours a day. I'd go to class at college and I'd have my Bible up reading. I got called on the carpet a bunch of times. I'd read it going down the road, driving down the road. I'd read it riding a horse. I'd read it doing anything that I'd done. I just read the Word. I got me a bunch of New Testaments. I carried New Testaments everywhere I went because I was never without my Bible. I had a love for the truth. It was an immediate byproduct. Amen? And a person who isn't hungering and thirsting after the things of God, it's because they don't have love on the inside of them the way that it should. Amen? Because when you have God's kind of love, you rejoice in the truth. And praise God, we need to cultivate that kind of love. Do you know there was a time in Pritchett, Colorado, where I didn't feel like reading the Word. I knew I needed to, and I'd set aside a night to study the Word. I knew I needed to do it, but I really just didn't have a rejoicing over thinking about getting in the Word. It seemed dry to me. Now, some people say, I can't believe you'd confess that. Well, I'm just telling you the way it is, amen. Sometimes I think it does good for people to know that a preacher isn't perfect yet. And then I have some of the same problems you all do. I know everybody's experienced that one time or another. You know you should be in the Word. Maybe it just doesn't appeal to you the way it should. Well, I'd just come off of a fast when, I, when this happened. And did you know when I fast, I reach a place where I don't want to eat. I really don't. I mean, I'd just as soon go without eating. But you have to start eating sooner or later. And I've also learned that if I'll start eating just as much as I feel like I need that things are great because, you see, my stomach is shrunk, my appetite's down, and I eat just a tiny bit. And if I'll do that, I'll stay at that level. And it'll keep me from getting back up to where I was, overweight and all these kind of things. And so I've learned that if I'll just come off of a fast and eat what I feel like eating and not eat anymore, stop. I don't care if it's a third the portion that I normally eat, that I'd be better off. But I've also seen that if I try and go back to eating normal, and if I eat normal amounts, it just bloats me. I feel full, miserable for the first day or so, but after a couple of days, I can't do without it. I'm right back up to where I was, and I've just got to have that much food or I'm hungry. Whereas before, you know, if I'd have just started eating small amounts, I'd stay where I am. It's not that my physical body desires it, it's that my appetite desires it. Everybody follow that? Well, the Lord showed me this concerning the Word. He says what happened was you've been on a fast from the Word. <laughs> he said you hadn't been in the Word the way that you should, and so therefore you just don't have a stomach for it the way that you did. You don't have as much desire for it. But he said just go ahead and gorge yourself tonight, amen, whether you feel like it or not. And he says pretty soon you're going to get to where you're dependent on that much, and you'll have to have it to get by. And so I thought, well, praise God, I'll start. And so I started with about an hour's worth. I started about 10 o'clock at night, and at 3.30 in the morning, I was still going, amen. I was turned on, and it really, you know, was working exactly the way that the Lord administered. I got turned on. I got to where I just couldn't put it down. And I've seen sometimes things like that happen. You may not have a love for the Word created in you the way that you should, but it's because your love's deficient. Just get in and start feasting on it, and you'll get to where you can't live without it. Amen? You've got to just get in it, whether you feel like it or whether you don't feel like it. But one thing you can do is take this scripture and start saying that God's kind of love rejoices in the truth. I've got God's kind of love, and praise God, I'm rejoicing in getting to see the truth and be in the word of truth. And if you'll operate in it, it'll set you free. Then it says, it beareth all things. Is there something that it seems like you can't bear? I've gone as far as I can. I can't bear it anymore. Well, you need to start operating in God's kind of love, because God's kind of love bears all things. Amen? That kind of takes away a lot of excuses, doesn't it? If you're to a point where you've just gone your last rope, well, why don't you get over into God's area? Amen? 
and let the Lord start living through you, and you can go a lot further. Because it bears all things. It believeth all things. This shows you how faith works by love. As Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, when you start operating in God's kind of love immediately, faith is going to start flowing. Because if you really believe that God loves you and God's all-powerful, and if that love is for you, well then, praise God, that means everything's for you. You can receive anything. It'll immediately quicken faith on the inside of you. Love is the motivating factor behind faith. And because many people have been deficient in love, they're deficient in faith. They got all the faith principles. They can recite them frontwards and backwards, but if you believe that God's getting angry at you at the drop of a hat every time you do something wrong, you'll never experience your faith working because faith works by love. It says here that, that love believeth all things, and it hopeth all things. I haven't got time to teach on hope, but hope is not faith, but hope is a part of faith. Hope is a goal. It's a vision that you set out in front of yourself. If your life looks hopeless, if you don't have any goals, if you don't have any visions, if it doesn't seem like you're going in any certain direction, you know one of the big reasons why? You're deficient in love. When you start seeing how much God loves you and when you really know that God's love is yours and it's available to you, that God has it for you, you know what will immediately happen? Boy, you'll begin to think the sky's the limit. Amen? You'll begin to start your vision and your goal and your hopes. You'll begin to put them out there because you know that God's on your side and you can do all things through Him and immediately hope will start coming into a person's life. A person that isn't operating in hope, doesn't have any joy about the future, isn't rejoicing in it, it's because they don't understand how much God loves them. They don't understand what God has made available to them. If you don't have hope, it's because you're deficient in the area of love. And the way you get yourself going is you say, praise God, I got God's kind of love. God loves me. All things are possible to him that believes. And you start enlarging your vision and you start reaching out and you start saying, God, I'm going to start believing you for some big things. You know, most of us get exactly what we believe for. Most of us don't believe for much. Most of us believe for piddling little is what it amounts to. We believe that God somehow or another is strained to supply our needs. So, Lord, I really need $120, but I'd settle for 100 And I would, Lord, really, honestly, I'd probably make it by until next time on 50 And I'd be content if you gave me 25 amen. That's about the way most of us act. You know the reason for that is because you don't know how much God loves you. If you knew how much God loves you, you'd just go to asking for a 1000 God's not going to miss it, amen. He wouldn't miss it. It wouldn't break him. He'd just soon give you a thousand. He'd give you a hundred and twenty. If you really understood how much God loves you, you'd go to believing for some big things. The reason we believe for such small things is because we think, Lord, I sure, you know, I'm really taxing our love relationship. I know I'm not worth a hundred and twenty. Man, you just don't understand how much God loves you. If you understand how much God loves you, you can reach out and begin to believe for some big things. Amen? Love will hope all things. It'll believe all things, and it'll endure all things. The word endure doesn't just mean put up with. The word endure means to go through it, to persevere. If you're feeling weak, like, man, you just got to quit, you need some love quickening on the inside of you, because love will help you endure. It'll help you persevere, go right through the thing. Storm the gates of hell. Amen? And then it says in verse 8 that love, or God, charity, never fails. Praise God. If you feel like you failed, you didn't operate in love. God's kind of love does not fail. Amen? Praise God. That's just real simple this morning, but did you know most people do not understand what we've talked about? And I'd say that there's not a person in here that made 100 on that test, myself included. 
it's important that you go back through here and that you begin to see what God's kind of love is. And if you find yourself match up deficient, don't get condemned. Just say, Father, I am going to start being what you said I am because you gave it to me. I'm going to start loving my husband, my wife, my children, my people on my job, whoever it is that Satan's using to come against you through. Say, I am going to start loving them with God's kind of love. And you start confessing it. And you won't feel like it, but who cares if you feel like it or not? Love is not a feeling. Boy, if God's people could get that in their heart, it would set us free. So many people, they go out and they try and operate on what I share with them about loving their husband or loving their wife. And they say, I tried it, but I just didn't feel it. I felt like a hypocrite. Well, big deal. Did you know you're a hypocrite if you aren't confessing that you love your husband? Because the Bible says that God's love is shed abroad in our heart, that you're saved by love. God's love, God lives on the inside of you, so you've got that kind of love. And if you aren't acting like you've got that kind of love, you're a hypocrite. Amen? It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. You are love. That's what your spiritual man is. And if you aren't acting on love, you're a hypocrite. I don't care whether you feel like it or not. You need to go to being what God says you are. And you need to start going and operating in love. And as you do it, if you do it, I, your feelings will come in line with it. You can change your feelings. Feelings are temporal. They're subject to change. You can change your feelings. Don't you be dominated by feelings. If your love is a feeling type of love, it's a carnal love. Now, God's kind of love will affect your feelings, but it does not originate from your feelings. It is not motivated or directed by your feelings. Your feelings are directed by your love. Amen? And if you'll start operating in God's kind of love like that, we would see things change. We'd see a lot of wives and a lot of husbands get one to the Lord if we'd start operating in that kind of love. Do you know it? I really believe. Now, I'm not saying that you haven't tried to operate in love towards your mate, but I'm saying that if you operated in God's kind of love towards your mate, can you imagine that person living with Jesus and having Jesus love them with a perfect love and them still being the way they are? Amen or oh me? If they're living with Jesus, that doesn't mean that they've got to accept. Persons, people have free will, but that does mean that they'd either reach a point of repentance or rejection. One of the two. Indifference is just not right. When a person ignores you, something's wrong. You hadn't operated in God's kind of love. God's kind of love, it says, heaps coals of fire upon their head. And I guarantee you, it's talking about not to hurt them, but to help them. It's conviction. Talking about, boy, you can really heap the conviction of the Holy Ghost on a person through love. And brothers and sisters, we haven't exploited love anything like what we should. That's the conclusion of the Saturday morning service, and now this is the beginning of Saturday evening service, August the 30th, 1980, in Colorado Springs. First of all, we've been talking about how love is the thing that God uses. That's the vehicle that everything else flows through, especially today. We talked about how that uh, the gifts flow through love. We talked about how that faith works by love, all of these kind of things. And so we've got to get God's kind of love functional on the inside of us. And what we talked about last night I think is really important because we talked about how that the Lord deals with our sins. The Lord does not impute our sins unto us according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The word reconcile means to make friendly again or bring back into harmony like you would all the different pieces of this band, the piano and the guitars, you bring them into harmony. That's you reconcile them. And so God was reconciling us unto Christ, not imputing our trespasses unto us. The word impute means to lay to our account. Amen? 
Let me give you just a couple of scriptures before we get on with this. There's so much on this that I didn't cover anywhere near all that could have been covered on this, so I'll just give you some scriptures that will verify things we talked about last night. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, it's quoting from Psalms chapter 32, where David spoke through inspiration of the Holy Spirit about our day. He prophesied concerning us. And Romans chapter 4 is quoting from Psalms chapter 32. And in verse 6, it says, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Well, there's a lot of teaching right there. And you'll just have to study it on your own. We've already covered that. But it didn't say, Blessed is the Lord, blessed is the man to whom the Lord did not or does not, but will not impute sin. Boy, that's strong. The atonement of the Lord Jesus forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future. If you got questions on that, you need to get a tape of last night. Amen. It'll answer that. And it'll go into a lot of detail. Something else that needs to be explained is that there needs to be an understanding between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that we're under. Now, most people say, yes, we're under the New Covenant. But most people, if I was to have a head count today, I'd say probably the vast majority of people in here don't really know the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. They somehow or another all bleed in together, and nobody knows the dividing line between the two. There's a very distinct dividing line. The Old Covenant was not a ministration of love. It was not a ministration of faith. Matter of fact, there's a scripture in Galatians chapter 3, and I'd like for you to look this up or you won't think I'm telling the truth. Amen. Galatians chapter 3 in verse 12, it says, And the law is not a faith. You can read that in context, and it says the same thing. He's talking about get out from under the old covenant law because he says the law is not a faith. Boy, most people say, I've heard people on the radio. I used to be on KQXI radio in Denver, and they're one of these real sin-conscious preaching radio stations. Send in and get the green string, red string, blue string, and all these kind of things. And anyway, I heard a guy on there preaching about, boy, you've got to keep the law of God. You've got to live holy, 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 holy. Without holiness, no man can see God. And on and on it goes. Well, we dealt with that in part last night. And I agree that God is holy. And without holiness, no man shall see God. But whose holiness? Yours or God's? You see, you just can't live holy enough. So the Lord Jesus came and lived a holy life for you. And he imputed his righteousness under your account. And it's true, holiness, you've got to see God, but not your holiness. I could take that same man and just whittle him down to where he would, by his own standard, be headed to hell because he's not perfect yet. And if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all, according to James chapter 2, verse 10. So anyway, there are people that stand up and say, Brother, I believe in the Ten Commandments. We've got to keep the Ten Commandments. We've got to do this and do that. Well, if you really want to keep the Ten Commandments, did you know one of them is to honor the the Lord and keep the Sabbath day. And the Lord interpreted what he meant by keeping the Sabbath day when a man went out and gathered sticks on, on the Sabbath day and he was stoned to death. If you really want to be under the Ten Commandments, every last person in here needs to be stoned to death. Now, come on now. There's got to be some wisdom in this. Do you really want to be back under the Ten Commandments? 
Somebody said, well, brother, are you saying that God doesn't care anymore, that the Ten Commandments aren't for us? I'm saying that the judgment of the Ten Commandments has been placed upon the Lord Jesus. The Ten Commandments gave God's righteous attitude. Amen. It gave this is the will of God. I can still profit from that. If I've got a business deal coming up and it looks pretty good, but I have to lie to be able to get the thing. And if I want to know, Lord, do you really want me to lie? I can go back to the Ten Commandments and see thou shalt not lie. And I can say, I know that God doesn't want me to lie because he gave a commandment one time not to lie. So I know that that's God's will. But at the same time, if I do fall short and if I do lie, I don't come under the punishment of the Ten Commandments because according to the punishment of it, I'm supposed to be stoned to death for lying. Did you know it? I don't come under the punishment of it. I can still profit from anything in the Old Testament. There is a way that it is for us. But brothers and sisters, there is a distinct difference between the Old and the New Covenants. A big, big difference. Amen? Now, some of these things I'm going to go through pretty hurriedly. If you want to get this verified, you're welcome to take a newsletter back there. And I've got a whole series on these kind of things. I've got a series entitled, The Law is Not of Faith. And if you'd get that, it'll go into detail and it'll answer these things. It's a four-tape series. But I'm going to go through some of these things pretty quick. An old covenant man had a dead spirit on the inside of them. They did not have a new spirit. They had a dead spirit. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says that before Christ came, we were all dead in trespasses and sin. What part of you is dead? Your physical body, your soulish man? No, it's your spirit. Your spirit is the part of you that was dead because that's the part of you that got born again. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's not talking about your body because if you're fat before you got saved, you're fat after you get saved. Amen? not talking about your soulish man. It's talking about the spirit man. The spirit man is the part of you that's new, that's changed. So this is the difference between a new covenant man and an old covenant man. An old covenant man did not have a new spirit. He had a dead spirit that was dead in trespasses and sins. In Psalms chapter 50, David prayed and he said, Lord, renew a right spirit within me. And then he began to say, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. You will not despise. That's said a number of places. And there's a lot of people today that talk about being broken before the Lord and just broken and broken. And they talk about being broken. An Old Testament man needed to be broken because, you see, there wasn't anything good on the inside of him. Everything he had needed to be broken and pliable so that God could just take him and use him however he wanted to. But a New Testament man, you don't need your spirit broken. Amen? There's nothing to be broken on the inside of it because it is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you try and humble yourself and beat yourself down with this whole unworthy teaching, it's not going to help you. The New Covenant says under Philemon, verse 6, that the communication of your faith becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The good things, acknowledging the good that is in you in Christ Jesus is what releases your faith. Under the old covenant, the only way you could get anything going, you see, was to sit here and acknowledge I'm nothing and just simply throw yourself on the mercy of God. Let's look at this in Galatians chapter 3. You should still be there. In Galatians chapter 3. And some of this, I'm just going to have to sum up. He's saying that the, what Abraham received, what all of these guys received, they received through faith, not through the law. The law never did bring faith. The law is not of faith, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. And the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. The Old Testament law near, never really pleased God by a person adhering to it. Well, what was the purpose of it then? Well, that's what it goes on to say 
in Galatians chapter 3. In verse 18 it says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had have been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture, now he begins to tell you the reason that the law came. The Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So he says that the Old Testament law was added because of transgressions. God had already released faith and gave a covenant of faith to Abraham when there was no law. That shows you that God's perfect plan wasn't law. God's perfect plan was faith. But the law was added because of transgressions. And then it uses the example of it being a schoolmaster. In other words, there's a comparison here between a child. A child is not able to understand and reason spiritual things the way that they should. Now, not totally, but basically speaking, you can't sit here and reason with a little one-year-old and say, now, you shouldn't run out in the street because if you run out in the street, a car might run over. You know, some of the people that are, are trying to give instructions about how to raise children today, Dr. Spock and all of these things, reason with them. Talk it out. Never tell them, do it because I told you to do it. Give them good reasons and all this. What do you do with the one-year-old? Well, Dr. Spock lets them go until they're five years old. If you let a kid go till they're five, you lost them. Unless you start interceding, but you lost them unless barring the intervention of God. Did you know it? If you let a child go to three, you're in trouble. If you let a child go to two, you've gone too long. Amen? A little tiny child may not be able to reason out spiritual things, but you know what? A little child can understand the rod. They can understand that if they go towards that curb again, they're going to get the rod every time. And even though they don't understand the spiritual significance behind it, or they aren't able to reason the way they should, they can respond to that rod. And some people say, oh, it's cruel to beat your children. You know, people have criticized us for spanking our kids, but did you know there's time that they've started into the street, and because we've spanked them and they've learned to obey us, and not go until we had to grab them and physically restrain them or grab them and yell at them or scream. They've learned to obey us, and as a result, they've started into the street, and we can say, Joshua, and they freeze, and it saved their life. They've started towards fans, and all you got to do is say no, and they stop. Brothers and sisters, that's rest, and that's peace. That's the way that God intended it to be. That's a superior method. But you see, they are not to a point where they understand spiritual things. There was a time, my mother just thinks I'm terrible for saying this, but there was a time that I prayed over Joshua, and Joshua had been sick. I had prayed over Joshua. I had believed God, and I'd see him get healed. And I'd see everything manifest. He'd be good, and by the time I got back from work, he'd be dragging again. And there was just a hindrance there, and I prayed, and the Lord finally showed me. He said, he's baptized in the Holy Ghost. He's saved, baptized, speak in tongues. He says, he needs to start agreeing with you. 
There comes a time your kid has to start agreeing with you. He was about four years old. He was saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost and operating in the gifts of the Spirit, calling healings out at our meetings, amen. And, I mean, he was to a point where he could start believing for on his own for some of these things. And so I started telling him, now, Joshua, you need to stand with me. And I understood how he felt because he was tired. And because he wasn't feeling just tip-top, he wanted to give in to that flesh. And I said, you're going to have to start resisting the devil. He didn't understand what I was trying to teach him because he didn't understand all about resisting the devil. He didn't understand that if you give place to the devil, Satan will make you sick. So finally I said, Joshua, I know what you do understand. And I said, if you don't straighten up and help me start acting healed, I'm going to spank you. Some people, I can't believe you'd do that. I want to make this clear. There are some people that would probably abuse this and spank your kid for getting sick. I did not spank my kid for getting sick. That's child abuse. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about that I was helping him stand and resist the devil. And he, he resisted for a minute or two, and then he started dragging around again. And I said, Joshua, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to teach you that you need to resist the devil whether you feel like it or not. And I spanked him. And I got up and I said, let's go. And we started dancing. We ran and we jumped and we hooped and we hollered. And in about 10 minutes' time, he was doing fine. And he got up. He went outside and played. And he never had another symptom. He never threw up again. He didn't have any more problems. Now, he didn't understand about resisting the devil. And I had to help him. But did you know there comes a time if the guy's 30 years old that you just don't go whip your son and help him to get to resist the devil? There comes a time that you're of age and no longer do you use that. If you were to take a 30-year-old and try and take him down and spank him, you'd do more harm than good. And it doesn't have to be 30 years old. I believe it stops pretty soon. The Bible talks about chastening your son be times. That means early and quick. And it says chasing your son while there's hope. Did you know that there's a time that you lose all hope of changing a child through discipline? Some people are going to start on their 15-year-old kid. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't. A lady told us at a meeting that she took her kid home and spanked him, and his 16 years old didn't hurt him. He didn't cry, but he told her that he really appreciated it because he knew that she was trying to discipline. So I'm not saying that it wouldn't have any benefit, but I'm saying if you've waited till 15 or 16, you better start interceding and going some other direction. The rod's not the way that you're going to train a 15 or 16-year-old. Now, if you've brought them up using the rod, that may be a different story. I haven't got there yet. I don't know all of those things. Amen. But I'm saying that there is a time that the rod ceases to be a good thing. Well, the Bible is using this example. Before we were born again and before we got a new spirit on the inside of us, man could not understand things of God because the Bible says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Bible also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Some people say, brother, that's the way I believe. I believe we just don't know nothing down here, amen. We're just a poor wayfaring pilgrim. Further along, we'll know all about it. Who knows what God's going to do? Well, you see, you didn't read far enough. The next verse says, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. You see, a New Testament man is not limited to the natural realm. No man can receive the things of God except a spiritual man. An Old Testament man couldn't really perceive the workings of God. Those prophets that prophesied about the coming of the Lord and the virgin birth, the Bible says out of Second Peter that they didn't even understand what they was talking about. They searched diligently asking what manner of time they were talking about. They didn't understand. They couldn't tap into the things of God except on a very small scale. But a new covenant man is different. 
we now have a spirit that is alive unto God. And of course, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, the scripture says, put on your new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Those scriptures we read out of Second, First Corinthians chapter 2 says that the spiritual man judges all things. And then the last verse, verse 16 of chapter 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. First John chapter 2, verse 20 says, we have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. Well, do you all believe that? And then 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing which you have received of him abides within you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as that same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as he hath taught you, you shall abide in him. Brothers and sisters, we're different from an old covenant man. An old covenant man couldn't understand spiritual things, so God gave him something carnal, just like a child. God gave him a law. God added the law. He didn't want the law. It never was God's perfect plan. It was added because of transgressions is what this said. It was added as a corrective measure to keep us from going and living in sin. Romans chapter 5 says that before Moses' day, God wasn't imputing sins unto people. Do you know that? You read in the Old Testament some of the things that happened. You read in the book of Judges about where a man went into a city and the homosexuals in the town tried to come in and take him and he said no don't take me take my wife and he gave him his wife and they abused his wife and threw his wife back on the doorstep in the morning he just picked her up and put it on put her on his donkey she died took her home cut her up in 12 pieces and sent her to all of the 12 tribes of israel and said do something about it and they came and wiped out that entire city people read that in the word of god and they say i don't much understand this well, at the very end of the book of Judges, it says that in those days there was no law and every man did that which was right in his sight. God didn't approve what was done. He was just showing you what was going on. And the scripture doesn't condemn those people. There wasn't judgment on them because God was trying not to judge them for their sin. He was trying to be merciful unto them. But even though God wasn't judging that sin, sin has a twofold effect. Do you remember us talking about that last night? Not only does it put us in bondage with God, but it puts us in slavery to the devil. And even though God wasn't bringing judgment on that sin and giving people what they deserve, they were living in so much sin that Satan was dominating them. Man's lifespan went from nearly a thousand years down to uh, 200 years or 120 years in a little less than 2,000 years. I mean, it just was decreasing fast. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that lifespan was directly related according to sin. It was because sin was multiplying and running rampant. So God had to do something to stop it. Because the Savior, by the time the groundwork would have been laid and the Lord Jesus would have come, people would have been so bound in sin and so hardened by sin and so crusted over and blinded by it that they wouldn't have been able to receive salvation. So there had to be a restraint put on sin. So Moses came along with the law. And you stop and think about this, that from the time of the creation and the fall of man until the flood was a little less than 2,000 years. And in 2,000 years, things got to so bad that the Lord had to wipe that out and start over again. And the Bible says, the Lord Jesus himself said, that in the last times, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now, it's been 6,000 years since the flood. And we're just now approaching back to the sin and debauchery that was operating in the world before the flood. How come it took less than 2,000 years the first time, this time it's taken 6,000 years for things to get back in the mess? Because of the law. The law was given to restrain sin, just like a kid. 
You leave a kid to himself, man, he'll get so messed up that by the time he's 20 years old, if you try and straighten him out, you've lost it. You've blown it. He's corrupted. And it's going to take a supernatural act of God to intervene. There's no way to reason with him. He's gone. But you can restrain a kid by, by discipline, and even if he doesn't get converted, he will be restrained and kept from some things so that he still is reachable, and you can at least reach him. Well, this is what God did with the law. The law restrained sin and restrained people, and the Scripture says here it was like a fence. It shut us up unto faith. In other words, every time a person thought, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, everybody else out here is committing adultery, so it must not be wrong for me to commit adultery. Everybody else is homosexual, so it must not be wrong for me to be a homosexual. Every time they'd start that way, here's the law of God. And that law would condemn them, and they couldn't go that direction. They couldn't go they, everywhere they turned. They were completely surrounded by the law of God condemning them, and it just shut them up and separated them so the only way they could look was up and wait on God to do something. That's right where God wanted them, amen. Right where God wanted them. But, brothers and sisters, the Scripture says that w before faith came, we were shut up under the law unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under this schoolmaster. Now that we have faith, and now that God has given us a new creation, and now that we are a born-again person, God is not wanting us to be law-conscious, sin-conscious, because the law is not a faith. The law wars against love. The law, the law works wrath. It was a ministration of death meant for punishment. It showed us the wrath and the punishment of God. God doesn't want you to sit here under the wrath and the punishment of God. He wants to show you the love of God. But until you were able to receive that, until you got a born-again man, he used the law as a temporary measure. Amen? Let's look over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Scripture says here in verse 5, The end of the commandment is charity, or God's kind of love, brotherly love, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That's what we've been ministering on these last few days. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, neither un understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Amen? There's some people that have turned aside from preaching God's love and forgiveness and they got up and they preached law. And they don't understand what they're saying, neither what they affirm. If they understood, they'd understand that they are condemning themselves because they aren't perfect. If you break it in one point, you're guilty of all. They just don't understand what they're saying. Then it says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this. In other words, there's a qualification on the law. That the law is not made for a righteous man. Well, who's a righteous man? We are, Amen. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I am the righteousness of God. My spirit man is righteous and truly holy, praise God. And I am righteous. The law isn't made for me. The law is made for the lawless, for the ungodly, for the whoremongers and adulterers, father, man-stealers, perjured persons. If there is any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, those are people that the law is made for. Not for a righteous man. You are not under the law. You are not governed by law. Somebody says, I just don't know if I like that or not, because if I'm not governed by law, what's to keep me from going out and living in sin? Let's look in Romans chapter 6, and I'll show you what's to keep you from going out and living in sin. Romans chapter 6. Paul was ministering along these lines. Paul ministered a lot on this. We could teach on this subject for literally weeks because it's so important and it's been so neglected. 
But Paul was saying these same things in chapter 5, and then he started chapter 6 with he knew what somebody's question was going to be. Some of you probably here has been thinking the same thing. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? If I'm not under the law, does that mean I'm free to go live in sin and just let God's grace abound? Where sin's abound, grace abounds greater. I can go live like I want to. His answer is, God forbid. How, that, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, a person that's sitting here thinking that the law is the thing that's going to hold them in tow, you haven't understood the new birth. Because when you get born again, you get a spirit on the inside of you. And this spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is producing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The spirit within you will never direct you in sin. It'll only direct you in righteousness, holiness, in righteous living. And all you've got to do is just let this spirit govern. The Scripture says the same thing. Jesus said, look, love is the fulfilling of the whole law. He that loves has fulfilled the law because all of the commandments, you shall love your neighbor and do all of these things, it's briefly comprehended in this one saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill towards his neighbors. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Man, when you start receiving and seeing who you are, the Spirit within you does not lead you to commit sin. The Spirit within you leads you to live a holy life. And a person who is truly born again is seeking to live a holy life. And if you are restraining yourself by the law, then there's one of two things wrong. Either you don't know who you are, which is the main thing that's wrong with most religious people. We haven't been told who we are. Either you don't know who you are or you aren't born again. Because a person is wanting to go persist in sin and they need a law. They want something that's going to strike them down and put fear in their heart and keep them from living in sin. That person needs to either get born again or you need to learn who you are and see the love that God's committed unto you. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ will constrain you to live a holy life. Y'all getting this? I used to live under law and I did what I had to do. And according to the standards, I lived a pretty good life. I never said a cuss word in all my life. I've never smoked a cigarette in all my life. I've never taken a drink in all my life. And according to man's standards, that's pretty good. I still just as black as the ace of spades, amen, because if you keep break one commandment, you're guilty of them all. But man thought I was pretty good. They patted me on the back. But do you know March the 24th, 1968, when the Lord revealed himself to me and showed me how much he loved me, I guarantee you from that time on, my life transformed. I'd have given up bubblegum if I'd have thought it pleased God. I'd give up anything. I've done things that I wouldn't tell you things that are my convictions because there's nothing that's sin about it. It's just something that I do because I just want to do it for the Lord. And it's not, you know, if I was to put it out, somebody would come under bondage and think that's the way I've got to live. No, you don't have to live that way. I've chosen to do a lot of things that God didn't tell me I had to do. I separate myself and do some things because I want to do it because love will motivate you. Law may make you go witness to your neighbor out of condemnation, but law won't make you love, lay down your life for your neighbor. The Bible says love is the thing that compels you to lay down your life. Brothers and sisters, what we've got is you don't need a whip anymore. Out of Psalms chapter 32, that scripture that we read out of Romans chapter 4 was quoting from Psalms 32, talking about the new birth. And in Psalms chapter 32, it's talking of the new birth, and it says that I, I shall speak unto you, and you shall hear a word, saying, This is the way, walk thou in it. Only be not as the horse or as the mule, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they turn on you. See what he's saying? He's saying, Look, I'm, you're a new creature. 
you'll hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in. It says, don't act like a mule that has to have a bit or a bridle. Most Christians, the only thing that's motivating them is the bit and the bridle. They're waiting on God to strike them or something. They're waiting on this wrath, and they're being motivated from one condemnation to the other. The way they get motivated to give to missions is by somebody standing up and condemning them and saying people are going to bed hungry and here you are fat and all this kind of stuff. And they get condemned and they motive. Most Christians do what they do out of condemnation. That's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I've seen that in the area of healing a hundred times. People will hear what we're saying about healing and they'll feel condemned because they're going to the doctor and because they haven't received their healing and so they'll quit out of condemnation and they die. That's not proper motivation. I agree that, man, if you're healed, don't go to a doctor. Some people say, how do you feel about doctors? Well, I feel that if you're well, don't go to a doctor. If you're sick, go to a doctor. If you believe you're sick, go to a doctor. If you believe you're well, don't go to a doctor. That'll solve it, right? Those that are believing for healing don't need a doctor. I ain't got anything against veterinarians. But I don't send my dog to a veterinarian because I don't have a dog, Amen. I don't go to a doctor because I'm not sick. People are sick, go to a doctor. You're free. But I'm not sick, and I don't ever get sick, and I don't ever plan on getting sick, amen? So I don't go to a doctor. If you're sick, go to a doctor. That answers it real simple, doesn't it, amen? Pretty clear. But some people, you see, have quit going to a doctor out of condemnation. Brothers and sisters, fear is not faith condemnation won't get it. You've got to do it as an act of your faith. I tell you this, that if you aren't to a place of believing, keep going to the doctor and getting God's Word and get your faith built to where you can do it as an act of faith. When you do it as an act of faith, it'll release some power. But you see, Christians, that's basically what they do. They're motivated out of condemnation. The reason most people give... Now, and let me rephrase this. When I'm saying most people, I'm talking about without the intervention of the Holy Ghost. Amen. God's straightening this out, and it's changing. But the way it has been, most people give because they are condemned into giving out of Malachi chapter 3, that if you don't give, you are cursed with the curse. And they get up and preach, you are cursed with the curse. Brother, I'm not cursed with the curse even if I don't tithe. Amen? Amen. I'm getting off into an area. I'm going to have to sidetrack and answer some of these things or you all are going to think I'm blaspheming. Galatians chapter 3 says that I'm redeemed from the curse of the law. I don't care if I do blow it, and if I don't tithe, I'm not cursed with the curse. Let's look in Malachi chapter 3. We'll get back to where we were. Y'all just unplug, and we'll be right back. Amen. Malachi chapter 3 verse 7 says, or let's read verse 8. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings? You're cursed with the curse. I've had people stand up and say, Brother, you better give, because if you don't give, you are cursed with the curse. People say that the first 10% is a debt that you owe God. You can't believe for a return on the first 10%. It's a debt. If you don't give it, you've robbed God. You owe it to God. I've heard that all of my life. If you're going to take that as a principle... You're going to have to act in what verse 8 says. It says not only do you rob God in tithes, but also in offerings. That means that your offerings are a debt. That means not only is 10% a debt, but 20%, 30%, 40%. Where do you draw the line? Offerings are also a debt. Let's just say that if you don't give 50% to the Lord, you're robbing God. Well, that gets pretty strong in a hurry, doesn't it? Amen. 
Where are you going to draw the line? It didn't say only tithes are debts. Offerings are debts. Your offerings can't be free will either. You owe them to God. If you don't give them, you're cursed with the curse. Are you squeaking by with 10%? You're cursed with the curse. Now, I don't mean that, but I'm saying that that's what other people have been saying. That doesn't make sense. Jesus redeemed me from the curse. This was an Old Testament law, brothers and sisters. And under the Old Testament, they had this given as a righteous standard. And it was strictly enforced. But under the New Covenant, the Lord says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, or not verse 8, but about verse 6, He says, Let every man give as he purposeth in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, as if it was a debt, as if you had robbed God. For God loves a cheerful giver. If you're giving because you owe your 10% to God, you might as well keep it because you're going to need it. It's not going to benefit you. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today, if I give my body to be burned, if I give all of my goods to feed the poor, and if I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. If you give your 10%, if you give 90% as a debt that you owe to God, feeling like you've got to do it to fulfill Malachi 3, Verse 8, then you will profit nothing from it. It will not benefit you because you did not give it cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. There's a difference between the Old and the New Covenant. The 10% was an Old Testament law that, bless God, I'm not under it. Praise the Lord. Somebody says, Brother, are you saying that you don't have to give? No, the New Testament teaches giving. And if you want to be strict with it, I believe that the New Testament is a lot more than 10%. A person who's operating in a tithe is shortchanging God. You take a person that will start learning the truth about giving and you'll wind up, I've seen people give 100%. Take their paychecks and sign them over. Fanatics, amen. Love motivates you to give more than legalism ever does. You can go into some of these churches that preach 10% and preach you're cursed with the curse and you can go in there and you'll get 10% and not one penny more. But I've gone into some of those same places where they have pumped for an offering. We never take an offering. We never make an appeal. I simply let people know that if they want to give, you're free to give. Praise God. It takes money to finance the gospel. And then I give to them, and I love them, and I say that if you've been given to, give. And did you know that we receive offerings that would blow most people's mind? We've received offerings with less than 100 people present over $7,000 and never pass a bucket. Amen? Boy, if the old denominational people preaching 10% could get hold of that, they'd be doing good, wouldn't they? Brothers and sisters, love will motivate people a lot stronger than condemnation. And there's a bondage attached to that. It profits you nothing if you don't do it cheerfully and of a good heart. But you see, most Christians have been motivated to give out of, out of a bondage. Man, I know I've got to give this 10%. I don't want to, but I've got to, so God will rebuke the devourer for my sake. I've even heard faith preachers, people that I love and who have ministered to me that I just feel like aren't enlightened in this area, preach 10% and get up and say, this is the only exception in the Word of God where God will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Everywhere else you have to rebuke the devil, but God will rebuke the devourer if you're a tither. This isn't an exception, brothers and sisters. An Old Testament man didn't have authority over the devil. He couldn't say, devour, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. So if he'd get in and pay his tithes and get under God's umbrella, God would go to rebuking the devourer for his sake. Amen. But a New Testament saint, I got something greater than this. 
God gave me authority over the devil. And if you're a New Testament believer, I don't care if you are paying your tithes. If you don't rebuke the devourer, it won't get rebuked. Your tithes will not rebuke the devourer, brothers and sisters. Amen? Praise God. That was given because people didn't have any love within them. They didn't have a new born-again recreated spirit. And God had to set a minimum on them and say, look, at least do this. But under the new covenant, man, we don't need a minimum anymore. The Lord nearly has to set a limit on us. Amen? Because we want to give. We want to give. His brother right here is believing God. He told me there's 12 ministers the Lord's shown him, and he's going to supply every penny that those entire ministries need. The Lord's going to supply him with so much money. That's a little bit more than 10%, isn't it? He's talking, I told him I could take 2 or $3 million a year right now, and he says, I'll give it to you, brother. Dick Jones wrote me a check for a million dollars we got hanging on our board. It's not good yet. But we got a check for a million dollars there. That's more than 10%. What makes a fanatic do something like that? Love, brother. If I was up here preaching you're cursed with the curse, Dick would be giving me $20, amen, or whatever his 10% is. Love superior. I'm not teaching that you don't give, man. You can get more out of people by setting them free and ministering love than you ever will legalism and law. The law kills. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that the Old Testament law is a ministration of death. It was meant to kill. It was meant to destroy. It was meant to beat you down. It was meant to make you feel rotten. Why? Because you were rotten. Amen. But under the new covenant, I'm not rotten, praise God. I'm not an old sinner saved by grace. I'm the righteousness of God. And my faith becomes effectual by acknowledging the good things that are on the inside of me. God wants me to call out, call out from under that old law and get free from it and start operating in love. Love will surpass anything that the law can do. Amen. I used to go knock on five doors on Tuesdays. I started a special youth night visitation. I was, I was really burning up the woods. Amen. I was telling those people about Jesus, so-called. I'd go to the door and pray and say, Father, don't let them be home. And if they were home, I said, Lord, don't get into anything heavy. Let me just tell them about University Baptist Church and go because I didn't know what to tell them. I'd sit there and I'd get knots in my stomach. I'd be so embarrassed. And I thought that I was really doing... Yeah, me too, amen. <laughs> I thought I was really doing good. And did you know that March the 24th, when the Lord showed me how much He loved me and He changed my life, did you know that within a week's time, I had two brothers that moved into my house. We stayed up and started special Bible studies. We started special prayer meetings in the morning, and we divided the city of Arlington, Texas, up into sections, kept an index on every person in the town, and knocked on not less than 100 doors a day. And, man, I was praying, Jesus, let me get past religion and tell them about you. We'd go and we'd knock on the doors and say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Bam! They'd usually slam the door. I made a mistake. I started in the rich part of town. And after that fizzled out, we went to the poor section of town. We couldn't make more than two or three visits a day. Those people would just cry and say, man, I need help. <laughs> Amen. Love started compelling me to do things that before I thought I was really doing something great, visiting five people on Tuesdays and passing up about a thousand during the week at school that I'd refused to witness to. And I quit the special visitation, and I started witnessing to all of those thousand, amen. I witnessed to everything that moved. I'd grab them coming out of a 7-Eleven store. I did, and, of course, I wasn't using much wisdom. I did a lot of this in condemnation, but I remember grabbing a guy one time that had a pack of beer and telling him, Brother, you're going to hell. You need Jesus. 
Amen. We used to go out in front of the bars and track, pass out these tracks that says, Repent or else, turn or burn. <laughs> we used to do that. <laughs> We'd pass them out by the hundreds per night. We used to have this track that says, What you must do to go to hell. And you open it up and there wasn't anything on the two pages and you turn it over on the back and it says, That's right, nothing for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. And then we'd tell them about Jesus. We tried everything that there was. I got to where I used catchy phrases. I mean, I was compelled. I was seeking to witness to people. I didn't know how to do it, but, man, I was giving it everything I had. Nobody had ever taught me how to witness. I went up, and I remember seeing a sign, you know, on the fence that says, Beware of dogs. And I went up, and I rang the doorbell, and I said, Praise God, you must be a Christian. They looked at me like, Why do you think I'm a Christian? I said, Well, you got that scripture out there on your fence said, Scripture on my fence says, Yeah, beware of dogs. And I'd open up to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, and where it says, Beware of dogs, and I'd just keep reading, amen. <laughs> I'd get them started, and I'd just keep reading, and I wouldn't stop. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, I tell you what, brothers and sisters, there is no soul-winning course that will ever make you that stupid, amen, that fanatical. But when you get God's love flowing in your heart, praise God, you'll go to doing some things. I've done a lot of peculiar things. And love is a greater motivating force than condemnation. All condemnation ever got me to do is knock on doors and pray that nobody was home. Praise God. Love is greater, brothers and sisters. And what I'm saying doesn't free you to go live in sin. It frees you from sin. Because, you see, even though you may be trying to do the right things, you're going to blow it. You're going to fall short. And what happens if you're under the law? All the condemnation of the law comes in upon you, and you begin to feel condemned. And it'll do exactly what the Scripture says. It'll minister death to you. It'll kill the love that we've been talking about. Love and law are opposites. The law wasn't given to show God's love. It was given to show God's wrath. And if you're under the law, the law is not of faith. You can't live under it. Get out from under it, amen? It'll kill you. It'll destroy. If you're going to church because you have to go to church, because that's your obligation as a Christian, quit going to church. It's not going to profit you. Start going for the right motive because God says that as you go, you can exhort one another daily and keep yourself from being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Go because like what Jack's saying, man, you're so excited about praising God, you couldn't stand to be away. That's a proper motivation. Most of us go to church, and after you go to church, you come out feeling lower in a gopher hole, worse than you were when you went in. Praise God. There's a better way. The better way is love. Amen? Love is superior. Let me give you another example. Now, most of you will really relate to this, really relate to it, out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy cha chapter 28 is good. Everybody says, man, that's the blessings of God. But you know what? Most people get hung up in verses 1 and 2. It says here, let's start reading with verse 3, okay? Let's read it the way most people believe it. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 3 says, Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. 
Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command. Boy, that's good, isn't it? The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and all that thou set thine hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee in holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. Thou shalt be above only and not beneath. And then, here's the catch. If thou shalt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Now, those are tremendous blessings, but that if makes a difference. And then, verse 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 and 2. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently. Amen? If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Now, there's a lot of people that say, I really believe that it is God's will to bless me. I really do believe that God loves me, and I really do believe that God is wanting to pour out these blessings on me. But, brother, the problem is I have not hearkened to the Lord the way that I should. I haven't been diligent the way that I should. And it says to observe to do all His commandments. Most people that want to be under the Ten Commandments don't even know what they all are. Did you know it? How many of you can tell me every one of the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. I won't make you recite it. Almost. Almost doesn't count. Look, if we're going to be under it and we've got to observe to do all of them, we've got to know all of them, right? That just shows you that people don't really believe what they say. And the Ten Commandments aren't all of them. You know, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they got multiplied thousands of commandments and ordinances that aren't in the Ten Commandments listed in Exodus chapter 20. You've got to observe to do all of them. You don't even know what they are. Man, you've blown it. You hadn't got a chance of fulfilling them if you don't know what they are. Well, there goes the blessings of God, right? Well, it goes if you think that you're going to be under the law. But you see, let's look over here in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent in His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin hath condemned sin in the flesh. And verse 4 says, That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. 
Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.